If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's Stuart Mars and welcome to the Pocalimp podcast. Xiaomi, the huge Chinese electronics company that makes pretty much everything from mobile phones to e-scooters, held a two-day, yes, a two-day mega launch event this week, announcing a number of new devices, including the Mi 11 Ultra. Pocalint's Cam Bunton joins us to bring us all the new details of the flagship phone and what else was announced. Meanwhile, I talked to the CEO of Fur Hat Robotics about the social humanoid robots the company is making and how it could help with assisting with care for patients with Alzheimer's or dementia in the future. And Pocalint's editor, Chris Hall, has been sleeping on the job. Yes. Why? Well, because he's been testing the new Google Nest Hub to find out whether it's any good. Are sweet dreams made of this? You see what we've done there? But first, back to you, Cam. Tell us more about the Xiaomi announcements this week. I mean, it's classic Xiaomi, isn't it? They had this two-day event and they announced lots and lots of products, uh, a range of phones, laptops. They even talked about an electric car, changing the logo, all kinds of things. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about the biggest announcement of the week then, the logo, because surely I know you're dying to tell me about this. What's you know? I'm, I'm joking. Let's uh, yeah. let's let's talk about the phone, the Mi 11 Ultra. That seems to be their new flagship device. It is, yeah. I think this this is, and it's actually coming to the UK um, next month. So this is going to be like their top tier, premium, all singing, all dancing phone that does everything uh, in a bid to sort of compete with the likes of Samsung and Oppo and all the other smartphone makers who are doing interesting things in the premium tier this year and what's exciting about it that you know is is it just yeah another top of the range phone or are there things that are slightly different that make it stand out i mean definitely things about it that will stand out if you just look at the design of the back of it you'll see it's got this monstrosity of a camera protrusion that takes up the entire top portion of the phone because it has a secondary display built into it Um, (laughs) which people generally don't see in smartphones um, but the idea, I think, here is that they, you'll be able to use this tiny little display to take selfies with the primary camera. So your selfies will look better than if you were to take them using the tiny little sensor on the front. And beyond the camera? I mean, beyond the camera, um, it's got really fast wireless charging, which seems to be a thing people are pushing, especially the Chinese manufacturers seem to be pushing, trying to make charging as fast as humanly possible. So with its proprietary wireless charging stand, uh, I think it's about 67 watts. So you can fully charge your phone in about 40 minutes on a wireless charger. Pretty crazy. With uh, considering the battery is about is 5,000 milliamp hour capacity as well, which is bigger than most other batteries. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite outstanding, really. And so, who's you know, this all sounds as though it's going to cost us a fortune. Is is that going to be the case, or is it a classic sort of you know? Cheapest chips for Chinese manufacturers. 
I don't think it'll be that cheap. Um, Xiaomi, I mean, traditionally Xiaomi does do phones that are cheaper than its competitors. But I think looking at the Mi 11, which is already on sale here, that phone costs £750 and that's just the bog standard phone in this range. So the Mi 11 Ultra, I can imagine, is going to cost close to £1,000, if not more, uh, just because of the specification and all the hardware and extra bits and pieces that come with it. For instance, the cameras on the back, which are obviously an expensive part, they have that new huge Samsung sensor that we, I think we wrote a new story about it a couple of weeks ago, um, as well as having flagship sensors in the ultra wide and the zoom lens. So it's none of this comes cheap. Um, so I think it's it's going to be quite an expensive phone for Xiaomi. Now, we talked at the beginning about how they've launched pretty much everything that you can think of, uh, probably even a kitchen sink. Probably wouldn't be surprised if that was buried in a press release somewhere. Uh, really was there anything else that caught your eye from the two days of announcements that came out of the company? I mean, there was so much. I mean, there's obviously there's the foldable phone, which is Xiaomi's first. So they're releasing a device that's going to compete with the likes of the Galaxy Fold 2 and the Huawei Mate X series. Um, they obviously, you said they changed their logo, which they talked for about an hour or two about how they just rounded off the corners to make it not square anymore. Wow. Uh, and they confirmed they're going to be getting into the car market to make electric cars. So, I mean, what didn't they announce? That's crazy. And do you think they'll, do you think, are they serious about the car market or is this just kind of a buzz word that they thought they threw in there just to get people excited? I mean, they seem pretty serious about it. They said they're going to invest $1.5 billion initially and then following it up with $10 billion extra over the next 10 years. So they don't seem like it's just something they're playing with on the side. Um, but again, the Chinese car market in is very different to what it is here. They have so many different manufacturers over there all releasing electric cars. So it, it'll be interesting to see whether we even see that car over here or if it's just going to be another one of those Chinese electric car manufacturers that launches cars in China. Still to come, Chris gives us his verdict on the new Google Nest Hub. Google is is sensing your sleep, telling you what your, the results of your sleep are like. And you wake up and it says, you didn't sleep very well. You had five and a half hours. You were fairly restless. And you're like, well, I know that. Sama Elam Ubayad is the CEO of Fur Hat Robotics, one of the world's fastest growing social robotics companies. Headquarters in Sweden, the company has built a robotic busk with a built-in camera, facial recognition software, and a silica mask that uses projected customizable facial animations to make the interactions between human and machine as lifelike and seamless as possible. More than just a talking head, Sama and his team hope the device will not only help lost passengers in airports find their way, but also help assist with care for patients with Alzheimer's and dementia and beyond. I started by asking him what he was hoping to achieve with the project. So um, do you remember this dream that we've had when we were kids um, to, to um, interact with robots that looked like us and can talk and smile and really interact okay. with us as if they were human. Uh, you know, humanity has had this dream for about 100 years now. Um, and uh, we'd like to be the company that kind of builds that technology. And how do you go about achieving that then? Is it, you know, because if you look at sci-fi and sort of, you know, movies, which is our main focus of looking at what we believe the future will look like, robots are kind of drawn between a combination of replicants and androids sort of kind of Blade Runner and aliens and, and things like that, or they're kind of cute robots that look like Wally, -E, 
uh, and you know Johnny Johnny Five from Short Circuit and those kind of things. Do you right. do you, which one do you see being the future? So the um, I mean the way we look at robots uh, is really how we look at any other computer device. You um, um, today you have your phone, your tablet, your VR goggles, and um, Think about the phone. There are so many different designs and form factors, and you know things for kids and things for adults and things for more enterprise kind of customers. And um, robots are really kind of similar to that. We think that there's going to be thousands of applications where social robots will be used, will be useful, and every application might require slightly different personality for the robot. So for kids, right. you might want things that are more cartoonish. But maybe you're trying to build robots that would uh, um, help you practice um, where the robot simulates a patient or simulates an elderly to get you to to practice as a, a physician how to interact with patients. And in these applications, we want maybe the robot to be really realistic. Um, so yeah, we're building a platform that really allows you to do specifically that. You can change the personality, the age, the gender of the robot and uh, we give that kind of these tools to people to decide for themselves what personality fits which application now the robot you've built just to allow people listening to get sort of a picture in the mind is kind of from the shoulders up so you've kind of focused on the head and the shoulders and you've got a back projection for to display the face why have you gone through that route rather than something that's full body or just you know just of a box or something along those lines right yeah so the um in in many ways we're really a software company and a user experience company than a hardware company the goal for us is really to build something that allows people to interact with this computer kind of in 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 a really expressive way so that people can express themselves as if we're talking to other people uh, we use our faces, read the faces of the robot, the eyes. And if you look at humans, um, humans most, spend most of their life looking at faces. I mean, the fa- right. human face is the single most object we spend most of our kind of time looking at. We're extremely skilled at seeing the smallest subtle movements in the muscles in the face, the eye movements to understand people's attention and so on. So that's there's a lots of lots of areas in our brain that are programmed to interpret human faces. Um, so there's a lot of concentration of information, of emotion, of attention that's in a face. And that's why we kind of focus on the on the face. We're not building robots that can you know, climb the stairs or run or, or fly. Uh, we want something, we're building a kind of a user interaction device. Um, so we built, we built the face. And then obviously, as you mentioned, we've We've done a back projection solution. So there's a the, the face of the robot is actually optically lit. So there are no servos or motors in the face. When you meet the robot face to, in the physical world, you, people actually don't recognize that it's optical. So there's an illusion that people feel that the robot face is moving. Um, but we use computer graphics to do that so we can get very high resolution you know, to avoid that uncanny valley or making the robot look creepy. And where do you expect them to be used? Um, so the we say any any place where uh, where human connection is needed. So for example, we we have pilots now in airports and train stations where travelers can interact with a robot um, to get directions or to solve problems. Um, 
a robot can be very powerful compared to, say, a screen where you have to press buttons to get information because the robot has cameras, can identify if you're stressed or if you're angry or if how, how old you are. So it might predict you know, how comfortable you are in an environment like an airport and then answer you with a calming voice and with a smile on its face to... Uh, so that this kind of environment would be very suitable for a robot. But then there are, you know, tens of other application areas that we're we're exploring. Now that doesn't sound like you can just something that you can pull out the bag in a couple of weeks with a bit of work. How how hard has it been to create that? Yeah, you're you're right in that. <laughs> if you think of of the analogy to the iPhone, um, so we're um, we're built kind of Apple built you know the phone, the operating system. The, skill, the store, the app store, and the tools for companies to build apps on them. But, you know, there are apps on the phone that you know, take a billion dollars and years to, to develop. And then there are apps that are very, very simple. The same really we, we foresee for robots. So we're building um, developer tools. And then some of the apps that get built on the on Furhat, the robot, are very simple, can take a few days to build. These are usually more entertainment or educational interactions with the robot and then some take you know millions of dollars and few years to build so uh, for these more kind of ambitious ap- applications uh, we collaborate with with other companies so we, we build partnerships with companies that are you know really good at that specific use case or in that market so in transport or healthcare and then we you know we, f- we spend a few months on a, a large budget to and then we pilot and do lots of user tests and so where did the idea come from and how long have you been working on it yourself? Uh, so Ferrat is, is uh, we started the company as a group of scientists that we did our research in human communication and, and what we call speech technology. So that, and then the idea, we used to work on, in, uh, on, on what we call animated characters. So characters that, you know, might, a character that might appear on your phone and talk to you or characters in computer games or in, in 3D animation. In movies, um, sure. and um, then we realized that there are the, the the power of talking to something physical that sits in front of you, that occupies space, is very different to our brain. So we've um, uh, we started to explore this idea of taking the character out of the screen and putting it in the world to simulate what we call the final frontier of building a machine that is. Um, that is physical and has a body and has a voice and a face and simulates really when two people are meeting in the physical space together. So we took the animated characters and then we used the projector and we projected that on a on a, um, a human bust or a, or a mannequin. Uh, yeah. and we realized that, oh, suddenly the mannequin became alive. It started to blink and that feeling in, in our brain, there was also an emotional reaction to very different from looking at a character that's in a computer screen. And then we decided to take it forward from there. And so do you think there will ever be a time where the robot has is, is has legs, so to speak, in that sense of you either develop them yourself or you go to another company like a Boston Dynamics or even one of those teleconferencing, you know, uh, run around drone things that they kind of, you know, wheeling around place and putting your your bust onto your mannequin head onto, onto a device like that? Yeah, so the 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 problem of adding legs or a robot is really an a more of an um, a mechanical engineering problem than it is a commun- you know speech technology or communication problem. So the 
the but as you say obviously there are applications where you really want a full body uh, sure. not necessarily to move around but also to create a comfortable experience um, so um, there will be many different form factors obviously in, in the future for robots there will be many companies building many different types of robots and there will be probably software that runs on all of them similar to say android today on the on all types of android phones um, there will be probably things that we build at Ferhat, but then things that we work with other companies to build. So um, one of our earlier uh, partners was, was Disney, um, um, at the unit that works with Disney parks and resorts. And then they took the robot and added a body for it for a specific, you know, exploring specific experience in the parks for a specific right. character you know, that kind of Disney works on. And in, in that case, you know, Disney has all this creative power and the resources to build the body. And then we focus on the software and kind of the brain of the robot. Cool. And then I suppose the final question I have is what's in store for the future? Um, so, I mean, the, the, the time is, has, has really come. There are some really interesting things happening in technology today that allow this dream of a social robot to be really realistic right now. Uh, there are lots of, of innovation in speech technology you have siri and alexa and google home so lots of breakthroughs in in computer vision you know algorithms can track people analyze their faces um so the the, the time we, we believe the time is kind of, there's an infliction infliction point where there's going to be a lot of innovation in social robotics um so we expect over the next five to ten years to see robots really everywhere in society clinics, schools, uh, shopping malls. Um, and then the final frontier for us is obviously the home environment where we can um, build something that people can interact with at home and find useful not only for a single interaction, but really on a daily basis. Now, I know you're, you're selling this into businesses rather than direct consumers. Where if, if the listeners to the podcast wanted to see, is there any way they can see this in action sort of in a you know in an actual environment or is it still kind of in the lab and and working towards a reality yeah so we have a few um a few robots in the wild uh, doing different interesting things right now obviously during the pandemic things yeah. have been you know airports and train stations obviously have, have struggled so um the it would be more difficult at least now to see robots in in the public domain uh, but we have few robots in schools, um, obviously in trains and and and, and airports, um, and then we have applications where there are they are a little bit more hidden, still facing people. But we have an application where the robot is performed job interviews, uh, where people can interact, right. go to a job interview with the robot to to really try to make that interview less biased but still human like. Um, uh, but definitely go to our social media and and follow us, and we keep posting lots of kind of uh, up-to-date news on where there are appearances of fur hats around the world. The Google Nest Hub, the second generation that is, updates Google's first smart display, which originally launched as the Google Home Hub. Are you still with us? Okay, right. Sporting a seven-inch display, its rivals Amazon Echo Show models looking to bring a visual experience to Google Assistant and slot the Mountain View company to the center of your home. This time around, however, Google has eyes on your bedroom and helping you to track your sleep. Following the launch a couple of weeks ago, Pocketlint's Chris Hall has now been living with one and joins us to tell us how he's been getting on. So, Chris, what's it like? 
Well, the thing to talk about here is sleep tracking because that's the new part. And as you said in your preamble, this device outside of sleep tracking is pretty much the same as the previous generation. So mm. we just draw a line under that and say, well, the old one was great. The new one is still great. But let's talk about sleep tracking because that's the interesting bit. Yeah. So as soon as you plug it in, assuming you take it into the bedroom and plug it in on your bedside table, you will be invited to go through the normal setup procedure and then you'll come to the sleep tracking, which is completely optional. You can opt out if you just don't want it. And the first thing that you have to do is calibrate it, which is really interesting because I know that we discussed before about radar and pinging and submarines and the Battle of Britain and all of that stuff. (laughs) So now having experienced that in real life, it's it really is very very simple. You just have to make sure that your your uh, the device is facing the right direction. And they give you visual instructions on the screen to show you what to do. Then you just lie on your bed, and it basically just sees it, if it can detect you and detect your normal breathing and movements, which is what it does. Once you've done that, it says, "Okay, it's calibrated." And here's the catch: once it's calibrated, you can't move it; otherwise, it won't be able to see you, and you can't guarantee that your sleep sensing is going to be calibrated anymore. So, so that's just something to bear it, in mind. If you if knock you, it on your table because you've moved something, or you've got a drink, or your hand, or whatever, then have you got to recalibrate the whole thing again? No, it, it, you can, you know, reach the buttons on the back of it or turn the volume up and down which will move it slightly and it won't care about that but if the cleaner comes along and picks it up and cleans the bedside table and then puts it down it'll be in a different position and you may have to readjust it after that Um, right and so not to go too much into your sleeping habits over the last couple of weeks but has it worked well it it does exactly what it sets out to do it will detect you sleeping and it's very clever in the things that it will detect okay so it knows when you get into bed, obviously, because there was no body, then there is a body. So that's fairly simple. It also knows when you get out of bed at any point, whether you're getting out of bed in the middle of the night, you know, going to the bathroom or whatever, or in the morning. It, and it also knows when you have gone to sleep. And that's where it slights to get it starts to get slightly more magical, shall we say, hmm. because that's the bit where you think, well, how do you actually know that I'm asleep? It must be about movement patterns. It must be about what it can see you doing. Um, how you're breathing, perhaps. But that seems to work as well. So I tend to go to bed, I read a bit, maybe I watch something, and then I I deliberately settle down, you know, roll over, glance at it sideways to see what time it is, and then I try and go to sleep. It sounds like Father Christmas. I mean, it it, knows when you're sleeping, it knows when you're awake. Exactly. And that's the sort of thing that keeps you awake at night, thinking, does it know that I'm awake now? Um, and, and that's where the, the, this whole thing sort of goes full circle. If you sleep well, if you don't have any problems sleeping, then why do you want the sleep tracking in the first place? What's it actually going to tell you? We know that people need around sort of seven or eight hours of sleep a night. And that's what's good for them. We know that sleep routines are important and that you need to try and establish these rhythms. You know, there's been a lot of talk about cutting down on blue light, not using displays in the evening and all of the mm. rest of this stuff. If you can sleep well, then the the thing that we wonder about is why you would need sleep tracking in the first place if you don't sleep well you may spend your whole time wondering about what the sleep tracking is doing and that's the thing that sort of catches you out so i'm not a great sleeper i spent the first few days wondering whether it knew that i was awake and sort of <laughs> playing this game with google saying hmm, i wonder if it knows that i'm awake uh, and, peekaboo. <laughs> and, 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 and here's the strange thing when you go back and look at the details in the middle of the night not in the middle of the night first thing in the morning when you've woken up you can then see that it does actually know when you're awake in the middle of the night but you can fool it if you are 
a person who struggles to sleep, you probably are experienced with that thing that you do where you try and get yourself in a meditative state. You relax, calm your breathing, try and empty your mind. I do it mm. by imagining a black square painted on the wall and imagine staring at the black square. Um, but when you're doing that, that's where it gets confused because you can do that and you can lie in a sort of sense of emptiness for quite a long time without actually being asleep. And it thinks you're asleep because it has right. no idea. So, and that, and that's the, that's the thing. If you if you do struggle to sleep and you're fine and you and you do those sorts of things, then this technology may not actually be helping you. And so, okay, so you've got past the whether I'm asleep, trying to trick it, understanding all that stuff. You've actually gone to sleep. You've got your data in the next morning. Is the data useful? Like, does it tell you like, okay, so you had a bad night's sleep, and therefore here's some things to perhaps help, or is it just the usual like, don't drink alcohol, don't use a computer screen, do some exercise, all those kind of things. Yeah, that's the thing, really. <laughs> the, the data is interesting for people who like data, and I like data. Obviously, I've done a lot of sports tracking stuff. I like the way that sleep and recovery works in, um, you know, works together as part of a holistic system with sleep recovery and exercise. And that doesn't quite go. This doesn't go quite go far enough for me yet. Um, I suspect that this will come in the future, perhaps with Fitbit integration. But at the moment, I get the sense that Google is is sensing your sleep telling you what your the results of your sleep are like and you wake up and it says you didn't sleep very well you had five and a half hours you were fairly restless and you're like well i know that but mm. when you get to the end of the week it will say certain things to you so it will say after it's got enough uh sleep data to analyze it will say you're lying in bed quite long in the morning this might be because you're really tired or because you're really lazy and refuse to get up and that's you know that's partly down to routine and it says which is a sort of alluding to your question before it does give these positive feedback things saying it's better if you establish a routine set yourself a task to do in the morning so that you have to get out of bed and do that rather than just lying in bed like a zombie what what google doesn't know is that when i'm lying in bed in the morning i'm actually on my phone checking through the feeds to see what was published by people overnight and uh, setting myself up for the day at work so i do have a task i just choose to do it in bed Right, right. And so, okay, so overall, though, is this a good thing? I mean, you said that the device as a whole is good. Would you recommend people go and buy one? I think so, yes, because the device itself is solid. The The screen is nice. Uh, Google Assistant is incredibly intelligent, and it serves its purpose very, very well. Visually, it's a great experience. There's nice card-based display that you can flip through. All that smart connectivity to connect to your home, control all of your devices, all of that kind of stuff and the benefits of Chromecast casting so you can use the display to watch BBC or Netflix, YouTube integration, Spotify, you name it. It's sort of all in there. The speaker mm. is better than it was before as well. I wouldn't say it's good enough to go out and upgrade one that you already have. So that kind of leaves sleep tracking as the deciding thing. If you wanted one of these, there's certainly if you wanted one before, then certainly there is nothing bad here to stop you going out and getting it. Should you go out because should you go out and buy it because you want the sleep tracking? Well, if you're interested in sleep tracking, it does has a, have a distinct advantage over some of its rivals in that you don't have to wear this, unlike Garmin, Apple, Fitbit, or those those companies where you have to wear a band. It saves you from that, which is great. But And it also does more because it's got all of this, all that functionality and sleep tracking. So unlike some of the other similar solutions, which only do the sleep tracking from the side of your bed, this Google Nest Hub will do everything. And I suppose it's worth saying as a final comment that you don't have to have this in the bedroom. No, you don't. You can put it in your kitchen. You can use it for recipes. 
and then it would detect if you were sleeping in your kitchen as well. Well, that's it for this week's show. Until next time, pip pip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.